0: What customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm, and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food & Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry. Bringing you education, information, and inspiration. Only on market scale.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. I'm very happy to have you along for this one as we have two great pieces of content that I can't wait to share with you the first of which is going to be more of a narrative-style podcast, where we're going to tell the story of the Fess Parker Winery. And we're going to do that by talking to Eli Parker, the president of Fess Parker Enterprises. Now, Fess Parker was a movie star that played Davy Crockett back in the 50s, 60s, that kind of time frame back in Hollywood. And his son, Eli Parker, has really taken over the family business of running the winery and the inn and the restaurant that's there on the property that they have bought out in Southern California. And so It's really interesting just getting to hear from Eli how they built the things that they built and how the business grew and uh, the different principles that they used to build that business and what mattered to them when it came to designing the restaurant and designing the space and what really pushes him to innovate when it comes to wine and what are his inspirations in that way. Uh, It's really, really interesting to hear him talk about it and hear the passion that he has for his work come across when you hear him speak. So it is a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to get to share it with you coming up here on the podcast. Our second feature on the show today is a conversation with David Benzikin, and he's the founder and CEO of Plant-Based Solutions. And it's really interesting to me to get to talk to him because he talks a lot about just the growing number of people that are interested in going to a more plant-based diet. But more than that, just the effect that more people doing this would have on the planet and its health overall. So this topic, according to David, has massive ramifications for the long-term health, not only of your body, but also of the planet in general. So it's a fascinating conversation, and um, I think you're going to find what he has to say very, very interesting. And uh, a lot more restaurants, especially big restaurants, are really interested in kind of diving into this world of more plant-based products. Uh, It's not something that seems to be going away anytime soon, so something to look at, something to consider, and something to learn more about and david is a perfect person to talk to for that all right without further ado let's dive into that first piece where we talk to eli parker the president of fest parker enterprises coming up next here on the market scale food and beverage podcast I know the name Fess Parker from his successful career in Hollywood, playing characters like this guy.
2: In 1988,
1: Fess and his wife Marcella purchased the 714-acre Foxen Canyon Ranch. His goal was to start a business that he could pass along to his children for the family to enjoy for years to come. And it's safe to say that he achieved that dream. The ranch now boasts the Fest Parker Wine Country Inn, as well as the Fest Parker Winery and Vineyard, the Bear and Star Restaurant, as well as several additional business ventures. Joining us on the podcast today to talk about the empire that the family has built is Fest Parker's son.
2: So, uh, my name is Eli Parker, and I'm one of the owners of the Bear and Star Restaurant here at Fest Parker Wine Country Inn. We're in the uh, in the little town specifically here of Los Olivos with a whopping population of about 1,100 people. And uh, a lot of people will drive through town and they'll kind of go, God, this looks familiar. They sp- they filmed uh, Mayberry, uh, episodes of Mayberry here, um, kind of the, the new release Mayberry. And for those of you that are uh, into the, the scary flicks, uh, I think they also filmed Hall- one of the Halloween episodes, certainly uh, up at, a lake that's very close by Zaka Lake and a little bit of the footage from town here as well. So it has a familiar flavor to some people.
1: Operations started small but starting a winery always felt like the natural progression. The passion for wine wasn't always there for Eli but it was certainly there for Fess.
2: Well my parents probably as far back as I can remember always enjoyed wine with you know uh, an evening meal occasionally at brunch and so they were you know they they were um, Kind of enophiles, I guess you would say. They, their um, their friends all enjoyed wine. They were kind of students of wine, and that just evolved into ultimately a kind of a greater curiosity and in, in, you know deciding to jump into the wine business. Um, I think really initially they had intended just to grow a few acres of grapes, but uh, things just evolved and. Um, I think we started in 1988 or 18, 89 with five acres of, of vineyard and ultimately ended up with close to 700 acres after uh, about 10 years. Um, and you know, kind of that natural progression is if you're gonna grow you know, good quality fruit, um, maybe we should have a winery as well. And so it just kind of, it just happened, I guess. When they started to be very honest with you, I was a, more of a beer drinker. I hadn't uh, hadn't developed a, a real taste for wine at that point. I was in my late 20s and um, had a, an opportunity to really work closely with the winemaker, the original winemaker that they hired back in uh, 1989. And you know, after two or three years of just trying to be helpful, um, cleaning barrels, cleaning tanks, uh, just doing whatever I could sort of in my off hours because I was trying to make a living in real estate here, uh, I just I fell in love with the business and uh, the more I studied uh, kind of the subject and the, the more I hung out with the people uh, here locally that were involved in it, uh, I just realized, you know, this is a, a great lifestyle and a fun business and, uh, you know, I think I'm going to jump in with both feet. So.
1: And he definitely did, taking charge as the head winemaker in 1996, a role that he maintained until 2005. His passion for wine and its ability to communicate a sense of place, culture, and time is evident when you hear him speak.
2: Well, I think, you know, um, really, for me, it's trying to get that full expression of the site. You hear people talk about terroir uh, or locality of wines. you know, Chardonnay, for example, is grown and, and produced all over the world. But what makes it so unique and special in all these different areas is the expression of kind of the local character, uh, the terroirs, the, the French uh, coin the you know phrase. Um, so I, I don't you know, it's trying to figure out the very best place in your local environment to get the greatest expression of that fruit. And that's probably what most winemakers are shooting for.
1: Eli left his role of head winemaker in 2005 to take on a broader role within the organization. One of his latest endeavors has been to establish the Bear and Star Restaurant.
2: So the Bear and Star is the name of the restaurant um, and the uh, name was sort of born out of a nod towards Texas, where my father uh, was born and raised, and where our head chef spent a number of his formative years, and California, so uh, California Bear, Texas Star, put the two together, and uh, it's kind of a catchy name, I think.
1: Everything from the wine to the name of the restaurant communicates a sense of place in the world, giving the location its identity and connection to its deeper roots. This mission carries itself all the way through the design of the restaurant to the food they raise and produce.
2: So, um, we're actually in the uh, wine room at the Baron Star Restaurant that's located in Fest Parker's Wine Country and in the heart of San Ynez Wine Country. Um, We've been in and out of the restaurant business here since we purchased the inn back in 1997, and um, we had a, a great uh, relationship with a, uh, a good friend of mine who actually leased the space from us for, for a number of years, but we decided two years ago to get back in the business. And it really is, um, it's, a, it's been an exciting endeavor for us. It really has allowed us to um, kind of take a lot of the resources that we have at hand, the ranch where the vineyards are located. Uh, in a a great little uh, community like Los Olivos and um, frankly, some incredible um, sort of agricultural opportunities to tie those into the ranch. You know, We've got a a herd of Wagyu beef uh, that we've been working on raising for now about three years and we've hired a horticulturist to help us with uh, growing all kinds of fruits and vegetables and we have chickens and ducks and quail and Um, So I'm sure a lot of people have heard of farm-to-table. This kind of um, takes it one step beyond that. It's sort of our farm-to-table and uh, we're fortunate to make the acquaintance of a uh, really talented young chef who's been sort of the the inspiration behind uh, a large part of this Um, and just a great team effort. That's how we got to where we are today. The restaurant business in general is just a very challenging business and there are now quite a number of very, very good restaurants here locally. Um, The locals in this community are fiercely loyal to those um, operators that have been in business for a long time, so trying to sort of launch and get the locals to embrace what you're doing is, like anywhere, a bit of a challenge. But I think, you know, when you create a beautiful environment and put, you know, great food on the table. You know, hopefully they'll give you a little bit of a chance. And if we're doing our job, we'll create kind of repeat customers there.
1: All of the details were carefully thought out, with special thought put into the design and aesthetic of the space. It was important to Eli and the rest of the team for the feel of the restaurant to tell the right story.
2: So I think we were looking to sort of tap into the, a little bit of the heritage of uh, the film career that my dad was involved with back in the 50s and the 60s. Um, You know, he portrayed Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. um, uh, And um, so that kind of, rustic theme kind of carries through a lot of of what we do but we wanted to kind of bring a more modern kind of contemporary bent to that and so we're trying to be respectful of our roots and where we are but at the same time do something that's a little bit more relevant to today Uh, so i think uh, you'll find here you know a lot of um, a lot of country but a lot of contemporary as well
1: In a time where every restaurant, hotel, and bar is looking to provide a memorable experience for their customers, being authentic and true to your roots, culture, and history is important. Customers don't want something phony or fake, and they can see right through that in a second. Finding comfort in the identity of the restaurant is important to making guests feel comfortable as well.
2: From my perspective, you know, people are always looking for, um, first and foremost, comfort and um, you know, kind of a again, and I'm going to go back to sort of what I mentioned earlier about the wine business—a sense of place, um, but with an integration of new materials and kind of a new sort of mix of the palette. And um, so, you know, I think to a certain extent, what you see here isn't um, inconsistent with where sort of design trends are going across the board. I think this rustic contemporary um, kind of look is something that a lot of people are kind of looking at and playing with, but um, you know, new materials, comfort, um, and just, you know, an eye that kind of brings locale to wherever you are.
1: Stay tuned to the Market Scale Food and Beverage Industry page for more from the Fest Parker Winery and that entire enterprise. Uh, we have some behind-the-scenes video that gives you just an in-depth look at everything going on there at the Baron Star, as well as the winery and much, much more. So you're going to want to check back on Wednesday, March 6th to check out that video to get a behind-the-scenes look there, and uh, it's going to make you want to go book a trip to wine country right away, so just be prepared for that. Alright, coming up next is my conversation with David Benzikin, the founder and CEO of Plant-Based Solutions and this is really a hot topic nowadays a big trend is plant-based foods more and more and plant-based substitutes for other foods that maybe you're used to having in the past. so specifically I can think of milk definitely uh, but also some meat substitutes and things along those lines. So we're gonna dive into all of that, really talk about this trend and how it's becoming a wider and wider thing and where it could go in the future and what's coming up next. So there's a lot to talk about regarding this uh, this topic. so we're gonna dive in coming up next on the market scale food and beverage podcast. joining me now on the podcast is David Benzikin. He's the founder and CEO of Plant-Based Solutions. David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So tell me a little bit more about what you do with Plant-Based Solutions.
0: Sure. So Plant-Based Solutions is a strategic brand management agency. We work to develop, launch, and scale new plant-based products. Uh, That is uh, all vegetarian or vegan food and beverage products into the marketplace in the United States and beyond. And we work with them on their branding, marketing, sales strategy, distribution strategy, and fundraising, as well as operations like helping get their products developed and scaled.
1: Wow. So what, what kind of prompted you uh, to start this kind of a company? Because there's, there's obviously um, m- more of a purpose and more of a heart behind this than just, oh, I started a company to make money. You know, It, it sounds like there's a larger purpose in this for you. There is.
0: So I've been plant-based myself for 17 years. And mm-hmm. I was really motivated by the incredible impact that one can have through their own dietary change on the planet, uh, animals' well-being, and our health. And all of these areas together can be so deeply impacted by the dietary choices we make because every single food you eat can be displacing something that is produced in a less sustainable, less healthy, or less uh Uh, ethical way for animals. And so I was really motivated by that. I spent a number of years in the nonprofit world working to educate people about the need for this dietary change and then realized that I could be more effective by helping to make the products that were the solutions uh, more successful in the marketplace.
1: So when it comes to uh, plant-based foods, how have you seen uh, there be an evolution in, over the last maybe five years or so? I, I feel like, um, and maybe I was just ignorant to what the market was up until you know until more recently, but it feels like more and more uh, these types of products are becoming uh, more popular in the marketplace and really kind of experiencing a lot of growth. And I'm just curious how you've seen that uh, over the last maybe five or 10 years.
0: Absolutely. So the biggest change is in the number of people who are looking to eat this way. It's not about the growth in the complete vegetarians or vegans. Those populations are growing at a fast clip, but the real change is in the number of people who are recognizing that even if they change their diets some of the time, or eat vegetarian some of the time, like Meatless Mondays or other efforts like that, they realize they can make a huge difference in their health and the environment. And so in 2013, Mintel did a study And they found that between 2008 and 2013, the number of vegans went up from about 1% to 1.5% in the US. The number of vegetarians went from about 5% to 7%. But the incredible shift was that the number of what we call flexitarians, which they defined as people who eat vegetarian more than half of the time, went from 6% to 16.7% in just those five years. And that number keeps rising. So when we're thinking about bringing new products to market, we're really thinking about helping people make healthier, more sustainable choices without having to sacrifice.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Now, uh, when, when we talk about uh, the impact on the environment and the planet in general, uh, what kind of impact can just one person have? Um, when it comes to this sort of thing, it feels like uh, a drop in the bucket, but you're kind of talking about just the, the amount of difference that it makes. Um, what is that difference and what is that impact?
0: Sure. So according to the United Nations, animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gases than all forms of, of transportation combined. And if you were to just eat vegetarian one day a week, you would save more water than if you didn't shower. Sorry, if you were to eat just vegetarian one day a week for the entire year, you would save more water than not showering for that entire year. If you wow. eat vegetarian one day a week, you reduce greenhouse gas emissions by more than switching from a Hummer to a hybrid for your entire year's commute. So the impact is really extraordinary.
1: Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Um- now, when it comes to companies like this, and this is kind of the, the area that plant-based solutions seems to operate in, is it difficult for companies to differentiate themselves in a marketplace like this where the brand isn't necessarily important as maybe the idea or the function of the product? Um, th- does that make sense where where if people just want to go plant-based... Um, it, that, choosing any company kind of achieves the goal that they're looking for as far as uh, doing better for the environment and uh, treating their bodies better. Is is it harder then for companies to stand out in that arena?
0: I don't think so because I think those values that we're speaking of are in essence the brand that people are identifying with. They may be even more likely to identify with the brand. Because they can trust in that founder's story or that company's commitment to doing right by their health or anything else. So mm-hmm. whatever company you think of in the better view or National food space, they are identifying their values as core to who they are. It might be in their name or certainly in their tagline. And people can see it through and through. They're more transparent. They're sharing the impact they're having on the world through their social media and through their websites. And so people are inspired by that.
1: Absolutely. Now, you're also the CEO of Ocean Hugger Foods. Explain a little bit more about your role there and what that company is all about.
0: Sure. So Ocean Hugger Foods is the first portfolio company that plant-based solutions has brought to market internally. And so after working as consultants for a number of other companies over the years, including many that have had successful exits and made a huge impact, we really decided we wanted to be on the entrepreneurial side and launch our own food brand. And so in 2016, we collaborated with certified master chef James Corwell, who was concerned about the sustainability issues around seafood, and we created Ocean Hugger Foods, which makes plant-based seafood alternatives using healthy whole vegetable ingredients. And the company makes things like tomatoes taste like raw tuna for sushi or poke, or eggplant tastes like eel unagi. And we've launched this in the U.S. and in Canada nationwide in restaurants. It's going extremely Mm -hmm. well and it's having a massive impact because tuna and eel and these other fish are among the most endangered species in the world.
1: Wow, that's really interesting to hear about, and uh, particularly appealing to me because I just just personally like I have a hard time imagining a diet without any sort of meat. That's just uh, you know I was born and raised in Texas. I think it's like just part of uh, part of uh, who we are here. I think as as you know how we're raised, but uh, I do think that there are alternatives and things that could be brought to the table that would appeal to somebody like me who maybe was raised from a certain background. But I you know if there are products along those lines, I think that that certain Helps a certain subset of the population.
0: Absolutely. So almost all of the people who are buying our products have or are meeting meat, eating meat at other times in their lives, mm-hmm. and it's all about helping people make healthy steps in a simple way. And so if you just make that one day a week commitment, or you switch from you know milk to soy milk, or these small shifts, even if it's occasionally, can make a massive difference. And these products are all about those making, making those switches convenient, affordable, effective, and fun. And really, so many people think that when you are shifting your diet in this way, that you're limiting what you're eating and sacrificing. But actually, since I adopted a plant-based diet, I believe the variety of foods that I eat has grown tremendously. Because before... My food was going to be a large piece of protein in the middle of of animal protein in the middle of my plate surrounded by a small side of some starch and maybe a side of a vegetable. But now that center plate item can be so much broader because I've been exploring and seeing how many other foods can bring incredible flavors and textures. So it's really an adventure and a journey and an exploration of all the new foods that we haven't chosen to appreciate.
1: That's really interesting. Now, what what's next, and what do you see as the next step for plant based foods, and and for uh, these companies? Is it grabbing a, even a larger share of the market, um, and, and continuing to kind of disrupt uh, traditional markets like dairy, or or you know the traditional protein style markets, or uh, what 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 do you see as the next step for these companies?
0: Yeah, if you look at the growth of non dairy milks in the last decade, it's been an astronomical. Uh, trajectory for these companies. Whereas a number of years ago, non-dairy milks had way less than 1% of the market. Today, non-dairy milks represent 12% of all milk purchases in the U.S. And globally, 75% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. So the potential for that market is even bigger. But when you take that same market success of plant-based milks, which I believe really succeeded because of taste preferences, as consumers came to realize that they could get so much more variety and try new things. The difference between a coconut milk and an almond milk or an oat milk, they're all so unique, you can have even more variety and more fun than if you were just having cow's milk. So if we extrapolate that same success that we've seen with plant-based milks to all these other markets for seafood, for eggs, for other dairy products, and for meat and poultry, the opportunity is astronomical. And we're excited to be part of that wave.
1: Yeah, and I'm excited to see how this continues to go and how this, how this grows, because you're absolutely right. I think if you told me five or ten years ago that I'd be switching to a plant-based you know, milk alternative, I would have said that you're crazy. But now I raise my hand and say I'm, I'm part of that. So I can definitely foresee a day where that uh, continues into other parts of my diet as well, and that, that seems to make a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, it's an exciting time. Everybody uh, on the culinary side is innovating. And the demand for this space has grown, grown so much that the amount of money that's coming into it to drive innovation, the amount of investment dollars that are available to companies like ours, from traditional investors to huge food companies like Tyson and Cargill that are realizing that they have to shift their portfolios to new investors who are joining the space because they finally have somewhere where they can align their investment dollars with the philanthropy they've been doing for years, there's so much opportunity and the demand is just driving more every day.
1: Are you seeing that same... Are you seeing that same kind of uh, demand from, let's say, restaurant owners and that sort of thing? Is that starting to catch on at that level as well, or is this still um, kind of straight to the consumer on on that sort of level? Or are restaurants beginning to catch on and say, you know, this is is more than just a fad, more than just a trend. This is a a lifestyle that people are adopting uh, in in increasing numbers and something that we should really uh, jump on board with?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. If you look at the business that I run, Ocean Hugger Foods, we actually sell exclusively, exclusively into restaurants and food service, and the reactions have been fantastic. We're in sushi and poke restaurants nationwide, and we even sell our products in some Michelin-starred restaurants like Saxon and Parole in New York City. Another example of that success is if you look at the Impossible Burger. Impossible Foods started exclusively in restaurants, and their first chefs to carry them weren't the hippy-dippy vegan restaurants. It was chefs like Momofuku's David Chang and others who previously have thought that they would never go into this space but have recognized that the foods are getting better every day and they can be proud to associate themselves with those foods and the demand is so great they just don't want to miss out.
1: Do you see yourselves almost like um... – like uh, disrupting an industry the same way that, you know, digital music and iTunes came along and kind of disrupted the traditional music industry or, you know, there are uh, tons of different examples of the innovation coming along and uh, sometimes people are late to the party, but in this case, people are wanting to jump on board uh, and not miss out on this. Uh, Do you see yourselves kind of in that way as disrupting a traditional industry?
0: Absolutely. If you look at the food industry today, It's broken, it's inefficient in terms of sustainability, but it's also inefficient economically. The farms we are relying on are so vulnerable to food disease outbreak, to exposés about the treatment of their workers and of the animals, to the risks that come with using incredible amounts of antibiotics on animals that can cause those antibiotics to be no longer available to human use. The risks are so great. And the options are so limited that consumers and investors alike are realizing that the opportunity is about finding new ways to bring sustainable, healthy, and delicious protein to the populace. And we are looking at doing that every day with new ingredients. For centuries, we've been using very limited ingredients, but today new products are coming out based on Millions of kinds of microalgae and plants, and all these ingredients that have never been explored for both their functional and their nutritional benefits. And now the world is like our oyster, ironically, to use that phrase, and we <laughs> can do so much more.
1: Well, uh, I, the way I look at it is if, if I can change uh, as far as what I consume as far as milk goes, and then I can probably change in just about any area. Then just about anybody can change. And so I, I think that there is kind of a, uh, a revolution of sorts going on, and I'm excited to see where this goes and uh, and uh, continue to follow the, uh, the trajectory of the market. So, David, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today, and I, I'm excited to continue following this.
0: Thank you so much. We'd love it if your listeners would try our product. Our first product is called Ahimi. It's that tomato-based alternative to raw tuna. And you can find it on our menu locator at OceanHuggerFoods.com in a restaurant near you.
1: I love it. Yeah, make sure to check that out, listeners, and uh, and uh, read up more about what David Benzikin and the people at Plant-Based Solutions as well as Ocean Huggers are doing. And uh, make sure to please check that out. That would be fantastic. David, thank you again for joining the podcast again.
0: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you so much to David Benzikin and Eli Parker for joining us for this episode of the show. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for for this week's episode of the Market Scale Food and Beverage Podcast. We appreciate you listening very much, and we will, of course, be back soon with another episode of the podcast. Until then, make sure you go check out the Market Scale Food and Beverage Industry page. The easiest way to get there is to go to marketscale.com. Click up at the top where it says Industries, scroll down to Food and Beverage, and then click there. You'll be able to find more written content, videos, podcasts, all of that good stuff there. And I'll tide you over until our next podcast. Again, like I mentioned, we'll be back soon with another episode, but until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.